You're listening to Listening to Fletcher C. Johnson. I'm Fletcher C. Johnson. Well, after season two of this podcast came out and everyone loved the Complete History of Fashion episode, I figured for season three, I should do another Complete History. But I didn't know about what. Fashion was something that I'd been into for the better part of 30 years. And that episode ran about an hour. So I figured if I wanted to do another full episode, I should come up with something else that had interested me for a couple of decades. And then I realized that I was coming up on the 20-year anniversary of me living in Brooklyn. So I started writing down notes, and then more notes, and then more notes. And then I said, well, fuck me. This thing looks like it's going to be a double episode. And then I talked to my Brooklyn friends, you know, comparing stories, trying to get the dates straight, trying to get it right. And there were more notes, and then more notes. And this thing, it just got away from me. So now, three episodes of this five-episode season are going to be dedicated to everything I know about Williamsburg. In 2002, the artist Ward Shelley created a timeline of the Williamsburg art scene. He actually turned this timeline into a beautiful piece of artwork itself. And in Shelley's recollection, the golden age of Williamsburg, as he calls it, is from 1991 through 1994. Now, I don't know anything about that. I wasn't here. During those years, I was just a wee lad pushing my first skateboard around the dirt roads of Vermont. I am not a historian. I'm a storyteller. And what I'm here to tell are the things that I saw in my time. Because I've been reading some old articles about Williamsburg, and they never get it right. Either they are trying to make it sound too cool, or the author is completely disconnected from the scene. Or, worse yet, the author is from Manhattan. Now, I'm going to warn you, I'm going to get things wrong, and I'm going to miss some stuff. Brooklyn is a busy, busy place, and I couldn't be here for everything, although I tried. By God, you'll see, I tried. I might not have been here with Ward Shelley in 91, but what I was here for was a time of almost unthinkably rapid change, which, which you'll learn all about in the next three episodes. So, without further ado, I present part one of the complete history of Williamsburg, as I know it. I spent the summer of 2001 living in Ben Bromptman's mom's basement on the Upper West Side. Ben and me were college friends, and his mom, Sherry, she agreed I could live with them if I promised to go to the movies with her once a week, because none of her kids would go with her anymore. And this seemed reasonable to me. Ben and I were close. 
Uh, but, you know, he had his own life in New York, and he had shit that he had to take care of during the day. So I spent most of that summer wandering around the East Village by myself. I would eat Sherry's food in the morning, bicycle downtown around noon, stay out until after midnight, and then eat Sherry's food again when I got home. Ben took me to some parties that summer, and occasionally we'd go out to bars, but he always had to pay for everything because I had no money and I wasn't even trying to find a job. One Sunday, Ben took me to Bar 13 on 13th Street and University, where they had a weekly soul music night named Shout. The crowd was all these young rock and rollers. I had just transitioned out of punk, and I had a bad indie rock haircut that was made worse by my thinning hair, and I had a new tan corduroy jacket that I'd stolen from the Levi's store, and honestly, I kind of looked like a mess. But I was obsessed with these rock guys, and going to shout on Sundays became the complete focal point of my week. It was the only cool thing I knew about in New York City. The rest of my time, I just spent reading books with the homeless people in Tompkins Square Park. Bar 13 was a medium-sized club with a lot of room for dancing, which people always did. You'd see the same faces every Sunday, and they all looked like people that I wanted to know. Karen O came every week, and she was the fucking mayor of that place. She knew everyone, and she danced a lot, and people generally gravitated toward what she was doing. She seemed very powerful. But I didn't know her name. The Yeah Yeah Yeahs had not taken off yet. They hadn't recorded anything. Really, the only reason I knew she was a musician at all was because she would sometimes walk around with flyers for upcoming shows and try to convince people to go, which I never did because I literally had zero dollars. But in any case, Karen O was not my main focus. I was in love with this girl with short bleach blonde hair who wore black horn rim glasses and she basically looked like a blonde Paul from the Wonder Years. Every week the DJs played the song Surfin' Bird and Blonde Paul was the only one who could dance to it. She could make Surfin' Bird seem graceful and sexy and I was in love. But I never met her or any of the regulars. I'd go every week from midnight to 4 a.m. I never bought a single drink. I'd just hang by myself all night and dance occasionally when the dance floor really got going. It took until the end of the summer for someone to finally approach me. I was in no way confident enough to begin talking to someone myself. I was 20 years old at the time, but I was, I was still a small-town boy, you know, using my fake ID to get into this club. But one night, I found myself dancing with a woman named Christina, who was a little older than me. Soon we were against the wall talking, and next thing I knew, I was telling her how I was sleeping in my friend's mom's basement. You know, not a very sexy thing to bring up. But then I immediately went on this fictional tangent about how the mom didn't want me coming home late, which is something Sherry didn't care about at all. But I was telling Christina how it would be better if I could stay with her, how it would save both me and Sherry 
a lot of trouble. This was the best pickup move I could come up with. Basically, guilting Christina into bringing me home with her. And it worked. Soon enough, Christina is driving me over the Williamsburg Bridge to her apartment on the south side of Williamsburg. I had heard of Williamsburg. I knew it was supposed to be a cool place. I I even made some kind of snide remark about it being hip, which I immediately was embarrassed about because that's not my attitude about anything. Well, the whole thing ended as you might expect. Upon arriving at Christina's apartment, she handed me, like, a pool flotation raft to sleep on. She didn't own a couch. The entire place was basically empty. Christina then immediately went to sleep. Obviously, I was not invited to join her. I woke the next day trapped in Williamsburg. I didn't have enough money for a subway ride. Plus, I didn't even know where there was a subway stop if I wanted it. My bicycle was still locked in front of bar 13. Uh, After a lot of wrong turns, I eventually found the Williamsburg Bridge and walked my way back to Manhattan. Little did I know, I had just spent my first night in the place that would eventually become my home and my entire world. During the summer of 2002, I did a trip to Brooklyn to visit my little brother, Matt. Matt had already been living in New York for a couple of years. Uh, He was attending the art school Pratt Institute. And while I was in town, Matt's friend BJ, he had set up this massive block party in Williamsburg. Williamsburg had already gained notoriety for its art music scene, and this block party was a pretty good cross-section of what was going on. It took place in a parking lot behind an already long-running residential loft building located at 151 Kent Avenue. Kent Ave is the last street before you hit the enormous East River, which separates Brooklyn from Manhattan. Kent runs parallel to the East River, although you can't see much of Manhattan from the street because there are looming factories that block your view. But by 2002, half of these factories were long out of business. They were just decaying along the water. Uh, you know, weeds were growing up through their parking lots. But you could, you could easily sneak through holes that were cut in the chain link fences, and you could walk down to the East River, and you'd have a view of Manhattan basically to yourself. This show featured local New York heroes, uh, La Savi Favre, Chick Chick Chick, and the French Kicks, as well as Providence art weirdos Lightning Bolt, who I'd seen a number of times in Boston, and then more than half a dozen other bands as well. It was a whole day event with hundreds of people in attendance, and it was just about the best show I'd ever been to in my life. I had never seen so many outcasts gathered together outside during the daylight hours. Like, if you collected all the weirdos in Boston, where I lived at the time, it wouldn't be half this many people. Well, a couple hours into the festival, one of my brother's friends comes up to us 
and asked if we want to go check out the other block party. You know, I was like, other block party? I don't think so. What's happening right here is amazing. But this friend insisted that we come along. They said they had just come from this other party and that was only five blocks away and that it was even bigger than the one we were at. So we're walking south on Kent, passing closed factory after closed factory, but the streets themselves are like an indie rock Mardi Gras. It's a river of like 150 people overflowing from the sidewalk and spilling out into the road, just walking between these two parties. Eventually, we arrive at an empty lot on Wythe Avenue near the Williamsburg Bridge. There were a number of undeveloped blocks in Williamsburg at this time, places where buildings had once existed and they'd been condemned and torn down, or parking lots next to abandoned factories where people had been discarding broken down cars and other scraps over the years. Well, this lot was not developed, but it was absolutely full. It was overflowing with hundreds and hundreds of people. You know, they spilled out into the sidewalk and they gathered in the streets blocking traffic just to get a look at the bands. And I look up, and there, on the stage, was the mayor of Soul Knight herself, Karen O. This is the first time I had seen her band. Up to, up to this point, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, to me, were just a name that existed on the flyers that Karen would hand out at Bar 13. But now, here they were, headlining this huge party along with another New York band, The Liars. I turned to my brother and asked, how was this possible? Who had fucked up so bad that there was two competing block parties on the same day, in the same neighborhood, that could easily draw the same crowd? And how were there enough artists and freaks and weirdos in this city that both parties could be at capacity at the same time, with 150 additional people in transit between them. But what I didn't realize is that it wasn't exactly the same crowd. Similar, but not the same. The first block party represented a piece of the Williamsburg art scene that had been incubating in Williamsburg since the 80s. It was people who had come up in a small community with a lot of space amongst all of these abandoned factories and empty lots. And the second block party, this was a piece of the long-running Manhattan nightlife scene, also full of artists and weirdos, but of a slightly different ilk. The kind of people that would go to a club on 13th Street for a weekly soul music night. But the two worlds were converging, and not just on this day. Manhattan artists were flooding into Brooklyn, and the look and feel of Williamsburg could not have been changing faster. And me, a man from a tiny town in Vermont, I was going to play my own small part in merging these two groups into one, and then watching them all get bulldozed by what was to come. I moved to Brooklyn in 2003 and began living with my brother in an apartment in Bed-Stuy over near Pratt. 
The entire building was Pratt students, and it was initially my plan to live in the stairwell of the building for free, like a fucking troll or something. Uh, there was a cubby hole that I'd noticed on a previous visit, and it seemed large enough for me and all of my stuff. In Boston, most recently, I had been living in a pantry, so this was not out of character. I pulled into town around midnight in a Honda Civic that was stuffed to the roof with all of my belongings. But when my brother let me into his building, I noticed that the cubby hole was now overflowing with canvases and cardboard boxes and other people's shit. It had become a storage space, which, I, which is probably what it was meant for in the first place. I didn't know what to do, so I left my stuff in the car and decided to sleep on it. Sleep on Matt's couch. But luckily, the next day, Matt's roommate Anita, she took pity on me. And she said I could live in her room with her for $150 a month, which was perfect. The room was tiny. Definitely, it was too small for both of our stuff. But it turned out that this was not going to be a problem. Because when I walked back to the Honda Civic, I found that the side window was smashed and everything I owned had been stolen. Everything except for this tiny little bed that I'd been sleeping on in the pantry. So that's how I ended up living on a tiny bed at the foot of Anita's bed. When I graduated college, my aunt and uncle, they unexpectedly gave me $1,000 as a graduation present. So instead of getting a job, I just managed to live on that money for about six months. No one is better than me at living on nothing. So basically, at this point in my life, my whole world revolved around spending as little money as possible, but having infinite free time on my hands. Some days I would just sit on Pratt campus and pretend I was a student and try to meet people, you know, ask them what classes they were taking or whatever. Occasionally, someone would walk up to me and confuse me for my brother, and I would just go with that. Like, I, they'd be like, hey, Matt, how was your summer? And I'd be like, really good. Do you know about any parties tonight? Like I said, I had already spent the summer of 2001 bumming around the East Village, so I felt like I had a pretty good handle on what was happening in Manhattan. So this time around, I decided to focus my energy on Brooklyn, and Williamsburg was supposedly the place. When I'm talking about Williamsburg in this story, the Williamsburg of my world, I'm largely referring to the northwestern corner of the neighborhood. Williamsburg itself is located in the northwestern corner of Brooklyn, with the East River running along its western border, and there's only one other neighborhood to the north separating it from Queens. Williamsburg itself can be separated into a number of mini-neighborhoods. The 40 or so blocks that make up northeastern Williamsburg, they house a long-running Italian community. Southeastern Williamsburg, this is largely made up of Puerto Rican and Dominican families. And this community also continues east all the way to the East River, filling in an additional 30 blocks between Grand Street and Broadway. When I talk about Broadway here, I'm talking about Broadway in Brooklyn, not the famous Manhattan Broadway with all the musicals and strip clubs and shit. Below Broadway, 
in southwestern Williamsburg, we have the largest Hasidic Jewish community in our country. They have their own grocery stores and hospitals and clothing stores, and they have their own police force. One time my friend's apartment was robbed in the Hasidic neighborhood, and he soon found himself in an SUV navigated by men in Hasidic garb with shotguns. These men chain-smoked cigarettes and frantically cruised around the neighborhood with like a Kojak light on the roof of their SUV, just trying to find the culprit of this robbery. Ultimately, they were successful, but that's a, that's a story for another podcast. Anyway, this brings us back to Northwestern Williamsburg, my Williamsburg. These 50 or so blocks running along the East River, they were the industrial section of Williamsburg, where, at one time, most of the people who lived in these other sections of the neighborhood, this is where they came to work. As many of these factories closed through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the buildings were being turned into studios and lofts and art galleries, and this is where the Williamsburg art scene began. All of this is miraculously close to Manhattan. If you take the L subway line one stop from the East Village, you will end up in the north side of Williamsburg. And if you take the JMZ train one stop from the Lower East Side, or you walk over the Williamsburg Bridge, you will arrive on the south side of Williamsburg. Now, the south side by the 70s This was considered one of, if not the, most dangerous neighborhood in New York City. And maybe this is what kept Williamsburg unchanged for so many years while Manhattanites were flooding over the bridges into Lower Brooklyn, into Cobble Hill and Borum Hill and Park Slope. But certainly by the time I showed up in 2003, the north side of Williamsburg was no longer a hidden place, although it was still a pretty quiet neighborhood. Loitering outside in a central location, this has been my favorite hobby since middle school. In Vermont, me and the outcasts I knew, we spent our time in a parking lot downtown named Harmony Parking Lot. We'd be out there all summer and straight through the super brutal Vermont winters. Once I moved to Boston, I found myself loitering with the other punks in Harvard Square. And then later, sitting around with the bike messengers on a slab of concrete near the corner of Newberry Street and Massachusetts Avenue. These two places represented the busiest pedestrian intersections in Boston, so that's where we spent our time. We wanted to be in the action. Now, Williamsburg in 2003, even when compared to the quaint Vermont parking lot, Williamsburg at this time didn't look like much, at least if your main goal was people watching. You'd see people getting off the subway to head home after work, and occasionally there would be someone actually walking to a job in the neighborhood. But the streets were pretty quiet for New York standards. But, of course, I had to loiter outside because that is what I do for fun. And in order to do that, I had to pick a place to sit. At this time, 
there was no notable main hub of activity in North Williamsburg. Like I said, to see the most possible people, the only thing you could really do was catch them getting off the subway. And the L train drops you on the corner of North 7th and Bedford Avenue. Bedford is the long-running main thoroughfare of industrial Williamsburg. So what I needed was a place to sit on Bedford near the train stop. There was, and still is, a lone stoop on Bedford between North 7th and North 8th Street, which would have been perfect. But the people who lived there, they were quick to yell at anyone who took a seat on their stoop, and they had a note on the stoop that said, no sitting, so that wasn't going to work. Between North 8th and North 9th Street, there are almost a dozen stoops attached to brownstones along the eastern side of Bedford. I tried these out for a little while, but the number of people passing by was low, even for quiet Williamsburg standards. Everyone who was exiting the train seemed to be walking south. And it's true that there was a smaller number of businesses above North 8th Street. Above North 8th, you had two bars, one coffee shop, a hardware store, and a Polish diner. Meanwhile, Bedford below North 8th Street, you had two bars, one Polish restaurant, one Mexican restaurant, a pizza place, a coffee shop, a bookstore, a record store, a great video rental shop, a Salvation Army, a pharmacy, and a bagel store. But the stoops in this direction were limited. There was only three. They were right next to each other on the block between North 5th and North 6th Street. And like Goldilocks, I had to try them all. 207 Bedford was too skinny. If someone wanted to enter or exit the building, you had to leave the stoop and walk down to the sidewalk to let them by. The stoop at 203 Bedford was beautiful. It had smooth, wide steps. But there were a bunch of people living in that building, and while they didn't verbally kick me off the stoop, there was regular sour looks. So this left 201 Bedford. And this became my home away from home. The stoop was tiny. It was only four steps tall. The railings were rusted, and the cement that made up the steps was either so old or so poorly constructed in the first place that rain had eaten away large chunks. The stairs led to a Hasidic real estate office, and these Jewish men who worked there, they wanted nothing to do with me. They didn't say hello. They didn't say, get off my stoop. They didn't even look at me when they entered and exited the building. And this relationship worked just fine for me. If I am an authority on Williamsburg at all, it is for one reason and one reason only. I spent 10 years sitting on this stoop every day for hours at a time. It is safe to say that I have never felt closer to any other location in my entire life. Now, 
I was living in my brother's world. I was hanging out with the friends he introduced me to, going to shows and parties that my brother knew about, which were all based in the Brooklyn art scene. And in many ways, they were centered around one man, Todd Patrick, or as he was more commonly known, Todd P. At this time, there was an explosion of DIY culture in America. The kids who had been raised on grunge music were becoming adults, and grunge had an open reverie for punk and its DIY teachings. This was escalated in the mid-90s when punk bands like Green Day and Rancid, they became mainstream music. You know, they were selling multi-platinum albums. And, well, it's certainly not true of every Green Day fan, enough of them took the time to look into more authentic punk culture and learn that they themselves could start their own bands or own their own record label or book shows in their hometown. And eventually they could move to the big cities and join other people who were doing this same shit. In 2003, Brooklyn had a strong community of people making high-energy, danceable art rock. And Todd P. was a show organizer and promoter who took it upon himself to find places for these bands to play. This was lofts and warehouses and factories. Closed factories, but also sometimes just like working factories that for some reason let a bunch of highly energetic weirdos play music in some dangerous room that they weren't using. I don't know what Todd P's system was. Maybe he just literally asked every person he came in contact with if they would host a show. All I know is every week there was a new location and these shows would be packed with sweaty people bouncing off each other and dancing and going basically berserk to the music. You know, this wasn't necessarily a safe place. Not that it was violent, but the kind of excitement we were having could only take place in an unstable environment. Shit would get broken, light fixtures would get ripped out of the ceiling, uh, people would get trampled in the audience, and walls would get spray-painted when they definitely should not have. Uh, but no matter how bad the audience fucked up, Todd P. always found a new venue for everyone to perform in. This scene was not new to me. In Boston, we were putting on similar types of shows in people's basements or in VFW halls, but it was smaller. Brooklyn had hundreds of places to play and a seemingly endless supply of energetic 20-somethings ready to come out to every event. This isn't to say that everyone in Williamsburg was in their 20s, by any means. Uh, my brother's crew of friends they were a new generation arriving in this neighborhood with a whole new way of doing things. The Williamsburg artists of the 80s and 90s were still around. They still owned lofts, they still owned galleries, they still had parties, but they had a different aesthetic. Like, when I think of the Brooklyn artists that came before me, I'm picturing large sculptures made out of old, rusty scrap metal or Dolls' heads nailed to things. Experimental theater. If you went to the amazing long-running parties that took place in Williamsburg at Rubelod, you're going to see clowns. 
not like clown toys, but like full-on clown people and circus performers. There'd be a band and then like a performance art piece and then a puppet show. And the only thing I can kind of compare it to now is like a Burning Man vibe or something. And it was really fun. I'm, I'm not putting it down, but this was different than the shows and the scene that me and my friends were trying to create. For better or worse, my generation had a real urgency. Prices were going up. I hear about these times when you could live in New York on nothing, you know, just scrape by. But that was gone. And not just in New York City, but everywhere. By 2003, I had traveled around the United States a few times, and everywhere I went, they seemed to tell me the same thing, that I had just missed the carefree days. I think a part of this change goes back to the rise of DIY culture at the turn of the century and the invention of social media. The number of people who wanted to be artists was ballooning, so the number of people that weren't looking for high-paying jobs and instead wanted to live in a cheap neighborhood and focus on art, the number of those people was increasing. And as a result, the greater number of people looking for cheap apartments was pushing up the prices of those cheap apartments everywhere. You could still live cheap, but you were going to have to have like 10 roommates. And that's how I ended up living in a pantry or on a little bed at the foot of Anita's bed. I'm not even complaining about this. I'm just saying that it happened. I want more artists. I want everyone to be an artist. That's the only people I like. And I love people. I want to be surrounded by them. If I have any problem with New York, it's that there's not enough people. I want tons of them, and I want them all to be weirdos. And that's exactly what was happening in Williamsburg. But these higher prices and smaller spaces were something you could feel at the shows we were doing. You know, there was an urgency to get out there. You needed high-speed chaos. Uh, you know, you couldn't take your time and lounge around because you couldn't afford to financially. And maybe that's why the audience members had a crash-and-burn attitude. At the same time, you could see the reverse of this by going to ABC No Rio in the Lower East Side. ABC No Rio was a long-running collective of punks putting on shows and trying to build a conscious community of respect and trust. Then you'd bike back over the bridge to Brooklyn, pop into a show at someone's loft, you know, someone's home, and see a person pissing on the floor in the corner of the living room because the bathroom line was too long. People were living filthy in Brooklyn. But the danger was exciting. And maybe that's why Todd P. had to find so many venues. And that's why we were lucky that Brooklyn had so many empty factories. Certainly not all the factories in Williamsburg were closed. Some were running as they had been for 50 years. Many of them had changed hands, and now instead of making something, they'd become storage spaces or warehouses for businesses. But this was a time when many people who owned these buildings, they didn't know what to do with them. 
rents were going up. They saw that the buildings were going to really be worth something in the future, but they weren't selling them yet. And in the meantime, random things were going in. Practice spaces. Because living quarters in New York City are so tight, you rarely have a situation where musicians can practice in their own home without neighbors calling the cops on them. So bands rent practice spaces. These are small, hopefully somewhat soundproof rooms in a building with a shitload of small rooms and usually one shared bathroom. The rooms are a few hundred dollars a month, and each practice space is usually shared by a number of bands. You can leave all your equipment there and hope that no one breaks in and steals it or that the building doesn't flood, which has happened to a number of bands that I know. In 2003, there were enough bands in Brooklyn that these practice spaces were everywhere. Each block in Williamsburg had like two fucking buildings full of them. There wasn't a clothing store or a movie theater or a fast food restaurant in industrial Williamsburg, but there was like 1,000 practice rooms. Still, even with all these rooms for bands, there wasn't a lot of spaces or businesses in the neighborhood that catered to this young artist crowd. Williamsburg was a place where people lived, but everyone went to work in Manhattan. Even retail and service industry jobs in Williamsburg were pretty slim. You know, There were bars like Turkey's Nest and Rosemary's, but they'd been around for 50-plus years, and the bartenders were more likely to be in their 60s than in their 20s. The big news when I arrived in Williamsburg was the opening of a massive Thai food restaurant in one of these factory buildings on North 7th Street. The place was named Planet Thai, and it had a small boat suspended from the ceiling that dripped water into a pool in the middle of the room. And no one could believe that something like this existed in Williamsburg. It seemed like a crazy novelty at the time. Now, a block away from Planet Thai was North 6th Street, and this is kind of a secondary thoroughfare for industrial Williamsburg. On North 6th Street, you had Sweetwater, which was a dive bar where the skaters hung out, and after that was Galapagos, which was an art and performance space that definitely had that earlier Williamsburg artist vibe. And then at the end of North 6th Street, there was a small venue simply named North Six. About the only other thing you could do on the north side of the neighborhood was go to Beacon's Closet, which was a warehouse-sized used clothing store on North 11th Street. Beacon's had been around since the mid-90s in a smaller location, but... Okay, so... So I'd be sitting on the stoop. This seemed to happen very regularly. I'd be sitting on the stoop in the middle of the afternoon, and a group of tourists would come up to me and say they came to Williamsburg because everyone said that it was cool. And they'd ask me what they should do, what they should see. And I'd tell them that if they'd already walked up Bedford and seen the four old man bars, two Polish restaurants, two coffee shops, and the bookstore, that they'd pretty much already done it all. But then I'd be like, actually, go walk to North 11th Street and stop in Beacon's Closet. 
It's a big-ass vintage clothing store. And later, I'd see the same tourists walking around with the, the pink plastic bags that Beacons puts your shit in after you bought it. And the tourists still looked kind of lost, but at least they were able to come to Williamsburg and buy something. Okay, let's talk buildings. The Williamsburg Bridge was completed in 1903. This connected Brooklyn to the Lower East Side and allowed thousands of immigrants to move out of the overcrowded Manhattan tenements and begin living in some soon-to-be-overcrowded Brooklyn tenements. As a result of the completion of this bridge, most of the buildings in Williamsburg were built around the same time. So, by the time I arrived, they were all just about 100 years old. It's interesting to me that the second major influx of people and the second wave of Williamsburg construction came almost exactly 100 years after the first. It's just another coincidental round number in this world. In any case... All of the buildings in Williamsburg were made out of brick. The brick factory buildings were usually three to six stories tall, while the brick tenement buildings were three to four stories tall, shorter than your average Manhattan tenement. At some point in time, a lot of people in the Italian section covered the outside of their brick buildings in, like, vinyl siding. I don't know why. I guess that was the style for a time. It's just a normal brick building underneath. Meanwhile, on the south side, most of the buildings have left their bricks exposed. I mentioned there were a few brownstones between North 8th and North 9th Street, but this was not the standard Williamsburg residential building. Mostly what you had were simple row houses. No stoops. Uh, they were always intended to be apartments, not single-family houses. And the apartments were always going to be for the poor workers of these factories. Of course, the construction of the apartment buildings reflected this. The walls were thin. You know, you could hear your neighbor talking through the wall. The windows were drafty. And 100 years of existence had not been kind to these buildings. So the floors and doorways were now slanted. And each building had its own unique set of problems. Some of which I will describe when I start living in Williamsburg. But that's not for a few years to come. No. By the beginning of 2004, I was heading in a different direction. I packed up my little bed, left Anita's room, and moved in to the Seagull Street Lofts in Bushwick. If you take the L train from Manhattan and continue past Bedford, the train then stops in the Italian neighborhood, and then the Puerto Rican neighborhood, and then around the projects, and then five stops after Bedford, you arrive at another industrial section of Brooklyn at the end of the Newtown Creek. This is the edge of Bushwick. If Williamsburg was slow-paced in 2004, it still looked like Times Square compared to the Morgan stop in Bushwick. When I arrived there, there was already four large factories that had been turned into residential lofts, but there was almost no businesses catering to this crowd. We had one bodega, one coffee shop, and a diner named Life Cafe. 
other than that, most of the factories out there were still working. The Boar's Head Deli Meat factory is right there. Uh, there was an Arizona iced tea warehouse. Also, the place where the dump trucks dumped their trash at the end of the night is right at the end of the Newtown Creek. So a couple of blocks from my loft is where they loaded the city's trash onto barges and let it float away. When I moved in, the loft had already been built out by a couple of friends of mine, and it was totally fucked. None of the rooms had sound insulation. None of the rooms had doors. Uh, There was no place to install an air conditioner in the summer, and the heat hardly worked in the winter. A band was always practicing at full volume in the loft next door to ours, and the one wall of our apartment that had windows was absolutely covered in black mold. The ceiling in my room was just over four feet tall, and I was paying $250 a month. If you look at a movie like Scorsese's After Hours, which came out in 85, you see artists in these beautiful Soho lofts with big arching windows and elaborate tin exteriors, and they're beautiful. By the 2000s, this is not what was happening. I had friends that were living in an old car repair shop with permanent oil stains on the ground. I had friends that lived above an active loading dock where Mack trucks ran continuously and poisoned the air. You were lucky to have a window. You were lucky to have heat. I didn't know anyone who had a loft with even one single fucking room that you could fart in without every one of your roommates hearing you. So I sat on the stoop. I slept in the loft, and the moment I woke up, I rode my bicycle to Bedford and sat on the stoop all day. That was my living room. It had about as much privacy as my loft did. I'd people watch all day, and even though there were far fewer people walking around than there were in Manhattan, the quality of weirdo in Williamsburg was higher. Everyone who passed me on the street seemed like they were someone I wanted to be friends with. Of course, now that I'm paying that whopping $250 a month in rent, My savings quickly ran out, so it was time to find a job. In Boston, I'd been working at a coffee shop, so I cruised to every coffee place in Manhattan and dropped off a resume, but I didn't have any luck. I tried some juice places, and then someone took me to, like, a high-end clothing store where if you worked there, you got a commission. But, But again, no one wanted me. Later, I'm back in Brooklyn, and I'm sitting on the stoop, and someone points out that they had just opened an American Apparel on North 6th Street, a block and a half from Bedford. This was a big deal. People were not happy about it. Not only did Industrial Williamsburg have no major chain stores, no Dunkin' Donuts, no McDonald's, but also, as best as I know, it didn't even have a single business that had a second location. Everything was a completely local business. But American Apparel was about to break this. Of course, they advertised themselves 
as like an alternative business with a whole different corporate structure or whatever. But the locals didn't buy this. But all the same, American Apparel would hire anybody. They were opening about a store a week in New York City, and they needed all the employees that they could get. So I soon found myself working the floor three days a week at Williamsburg's first chain store. Humorously, this would become another main stop for confused tourists. American Apparel was well lit. It looked like it belonged in Soho, and it was open till midnight. So tourists were drawn in, and they'd get all excited that there was going to be more shopping in Williamsburg. Then when they asked me what else they could do, I'd tell them the exact same thing I told them before. Walk over to North 11th Street and check out the only other store in town, Beacon's Closet. American Apparel was good because everyone quit all the time. It was a huge turnover rate. And, you know, I was new to the city, and I was trying to meet everyone I could. So every week, there was some new employee that might become my friend. I was still hanging with my brother's friends most nights, but there was something in my social world that I was missing. And... To explain this, I have to go back to Boston. Like I mentioned before, the DIY punk and art scenes were not new to me. Since the mid-90s, I'd been putting on my own shows or going to see bands play all over New England. In Boston, we had basement shows and house parties, and we had a strong social community for weirdos by weirdos. But around the turn of the century, another element was added. Gibby Miller, who I was familiar with as the singer of the Boston punk band The Trouble. He started an early, early social media site named Makeout Club. Certainly before this, outcasts were already using the internet to meet other outcasts, usually on message boards. But Gibby's website added profile pictures and bios. Uh, It added likes and dislikes and other shit like that years before other social media sites existed. And it was gaining popularity. I am not now and never have been much of an internet guy. But the world of this website became important to me in 2001 when Gibby started throwing a weekly dance party in Boston, where all these people who knew each other from the internet could come meet up in real life. Gibby named this party Start. At this same time, Electro Clash had arrived in America, and New York was building a scene around this. Simultaneously, disco backbeats were showing up in indie songs, as well as more sexual lyrics sometimes subversively sexual, like La Tigra. But then with someone like fucking Peaches, it was just overtly sexual. This was absolutely a new sexual awakening for my generation of outcasts. Up to this point, 
Not only had my punk and indie community not embraced sexuality, they were frightened of it, or they shunned it. To say you were asexual at this time was something to be proud of. You were a hero for escaping sexuality, whether you were lying about actually feeling this way or not. You have to understand, if you found yourself in our culture, it was probably because you hated or were bullied by masculinity, toxic masculinity or otherwise. That's a lot of what being a nerd is, which at its core is what we all were. And being horny was associated with this masculinity. But with the rise of things like electroclash, this idea was changing. So when Gibby started Start, this was going to be a weekly club night with sexuality that was full of people who were afraid of this macho energy. A horny little club night for losers and nerds. And this idea was very exciting for me, who was someone that had come out of the indie scene basically terrified of sex. When I moved out of Boston, I was looking for another city that embraced this new movement. First, I went to Portland, Oregon. But the only place there that you could find sexuality mixed with outsiderness was at the gay club, which I would go to. But there was nothing yet like this for straight people. In other towns, you could find a goth night or an 80s night, which almost had this dynamic. There would be a, a mix of normal people who just dressed up wildly for the night, mixed in with full-time weirdos. And everyone would be dancing and sometimes hooking up. But the whole party was almost a novelty. Also, looking back, it's crazy to realize how popular 80s nights were in the year 2000. Like, we were barely 10 years away from the 80s. But I think the sexuality had something to do with the popularity. Basically, gays and goths were way ahead of us indie kids when it came to club nights. So I arrive in Brooklyn, but the Williamsburg art scene that my brother introduced me to, they did not embrace this sexuality. I would say they even had an animosity towards the people that were involved in this new indie club scene. Williamsburg had been a home for Electroclash, specifically the club Lux. And I'd gone to a few dance punk shows at Lux before it shut down. But by 2004, the electroclash scene had basically dried up, and it wasn't exactly what I was looking for anyway. Going all the way back to 2001, people from New York City had regularly driven to Boston just to attend Start. So I knew the people I was looking for were around. I just needed to find them. And I was going to keep going to the DIY punk shows as well, because I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I wanted to swing both ways. Things in New York started coming together for me when I met Lauren Brown, a born and raised New Yorker who was living in Williamsburg and working at Real Life, which was a terrific video store on the same block as my stoop. In fact, Lauren and I had already met once before in Boston 
outside of start when she ran up to me and started hitting me. Not hitting on me, hitting me. Lauren and some of her friends had driven from New York to Boston just for the night. And the two of us had shown up to this club wearing almost the same jacket, which was a thin black windbreaker that happened to be both of our favorite item of clothing. At the end of the night, I was drunk enough that I accidentally exited the club wearing her jacket instead of my own. Lauren ran outside in a panic, saw me in her jacket, and started slapping me. When I explained that this was all a mistake, that I didn't want her jacket, she then hugged me, basically with tears of relief that her jacket wasn't gone, and then she started slapping me again while repeating over and over, you stupid boy. Lauren had a lot of energy. She loved drinking. She loved going out. Uh, She knew all about the art scene and the punk scene. And I started hanging with her in Brooklyn every day. She immediately became my closest friend. During one of our first days together, Lauren brought me to her friend's apartment where I met Stefan Neufeld and Pete Radcliffe. These guys were throwing a party every Tuesday at a bar in Manhattan named Happy Endings. This was a breakthrough for me. Their party was called We Bite, and while it was smaller than Start, it was exactly what I was looking for. A room full of outcasts and nerds who had never been invited to a party growing up, who came up through the punk or indie or goth or metal scene, and now they were crammed into a dark basement trying to figure out how to socialize, usually with the help of booze and cocaine. The DJs were playing the new dance punk or fucking disco indie songs uh, mixed with Britpop and the darker side of 80s music. All of these parties had a reverence for the 80s British club scene and the factory records crowd. A lot of the look and the attitude was a throwback to that. Something important that I immediately began to pick out of the crowd at We Bite was the few people that I'd also seen at the Todd P shows as well. The people I would become closest with, the people that would become my long-term friends, they were always, like me, involved in both of these worlds. I found the DIY show scene and the indie club scene both so exciting. And if you weren't able to see this, then I don't think you could truly understand me as a person at that time. It's funny to me that punks get angry when their friends turn to indie, and indie kids get angry when their friends turn to club kids. And everyone got fucking pissed at me when I gave up on all that shit for a time and turned to hip-hop. The people who are upset, they always say, oh, you're trying to be cool now. But none of these people are cool. No one at the indie club night is cool. They're the exact same nervous nerd that was at the punk show. These changes, trying these different identities. That's just something else to do if you're a weirdo. And indie kids still worship punk and club kids still listen to indie. Like, I don't know. I love chameleons. I love the David Bowies. I love the people that are always changing themselves and always trying new things. But, you know, outcasts in general, 
are a sensitive bunch, and if you change anything in their world, it's pretty easy to frighten them. Maybe everyone's like this. I, I don't know. I have no idea how normal people behave. So, through Steppen's Tuesday Night Party, it was easy to make friends and learn about other indie club nights that were happening all over Manhattan. And soon enough, I was coming to Manhattan seven nights a week. I'd sleep in Bushwick, wake up and roll straight to Williamsburg, either to sit on the stoop all day or work at American Apparel. I'd hang at Lauren Brown's apartment in the evening, pregame with some beers, and then we'd head over the bridge around midnight and stay out in Manhattan until the clubs closed at 4 a.m. I'd do this every night of the week for the next couple of years, unless Todd P. had a really good show happening in Brooklyn. Most of my nights in Manhattan were spent crossing the street between Max Fish and the Darkroom, or in the basement of Lit Lounge, or at the Cock, or the Hole, or Beauty Bar, or a dozen other places that became hot for a minute and then disappeared. But while I was going to Miss Shapes or the motherfucker parties, which had enormous crowds, nothing was ever as fun or as important to me personally as Stefan's Tuesday night party at Happy Endings. Okay, let's explain the Williamsburg bar scene in 2004, as seen through the eyes of a person in their early 20s. As I mentioned before, on Bedford, you had the Turkey's Nest, the Charleston, and Rosemary's. Three bars that had each been around for over 50 years. The staff at these places was older. You know, the Charleston had a guy in his 70s bartending. And the clientele was a bit of everyone from the neighborhood, and the drinks were very reasonably priced. If you got a shot of whiskey at the Turkey's Nest, they'd pour you a triple. Uh, Also on Bedford, you had Mugs, which opened in 1992, and it was a hang for that early Williamsburg artist crowd. Although by the time I got to Williamsburg, Mugs seemed like a place where 40-year-olds went to drink craft beer, so I didn't go there much. Now, a block from Bedford on Driggs, there was the Abbey, which opened in the 90s as a gay bar, but straight people just would not stop coming in. So eventually, it became a place for everyone. The Abbey was pretty filthy by the time I got there, and it had a good crowd of hard drinkers. I lived behind the Abbey for five years in a little house that you basically had to go through the Abbey to get to. So I, I became very friendly with the drunks that would hover outside. In 2002, five years after the Abbey opened, the same owners would open another gay bar in Williamsburg named Metropolitan. And Metropolitan has successfully stayed a gay bar to this day. Grand Street is the dividing line between North and South Williamsburg, and bars and restaurants have lined the street going back to the beginning of the neighborhood. Iona opened on Grand Street in 2000 as a traditional pub. Uh, I don't go there much. They think they're Scottish, and they sell a lot of Guinness. That's what I know about them. This isn't to say that I haven't gotten blackout drunk at Iona before, but that is only because they always opened earlier than all the other bars in the neighborhood. Okay, next in the early 2000s, uh, the owners of Beauty Bar, which is a fine bar in Manhattan, 
they had a short-lived spot on Grand Street named the Tainted Lady. And the Tainted Lady had velvet paintings of naked women adorning all of its walls. About a block down from the Tainted Lady on Grand, longtime Williamsburg sculpture artist John Clement opened Clems in 2003. This is the place that I've worked for the last decade and spent a lot of time drinking at before I worked there. Clems has a huge place in my heart. Although when I first moved to Williamsburg, Clems had just opened and it was shiny and clean and it just looked too new to interest me. So I didn't go there for the first couple of years. Two doors down from Clems was Lux, which was an art-freak hangout and show space that I mentioned before. Lux closed in 2004 and was replaced by the filthy tater tot hole known as Trash Bar. Stinger Bar was around for a couple of years on Grand. Written on the wall below Stinger's beer list was the words, Get naked, free shot, fuck on the bar, free bottle. If you know anything about me, you know I love to get naked when I am drunk. So I was quick to take them up on this first offer. But before I even got to the bar in my birthday suit, a bouncer grabbed me and dragged me outside. This was problematic, one, because it was the middle of the winter, and two, because all of my fucking clothing was in one of the booths. Just as I started to plead with the bouncer for my life, the bartender popped out the door and directed the bouncer towards the get naked free shot sign. The bouncer looked at me, then looked at the sign, then looked at naked me, and said, I did not think they were serious. Elsewhere in the neighborhood, you had Black Betty, which opened in 99, and Zebulon, which started in 2002. These were homes for live jazz and world music and performance art and, and the old guard of the Williamsburg art scene, with their large rusty metal sculptures and doll's heads glued to things and circus people and all that shit. Pete's Candy Store was also around at this time and, and kind of had that same old Williamsburg artist vibe to me. Although I didn't go there very much and maybe I'm way off about that. What Pete's Candy Store does have is the smallest venue in Williamsburg, which is designed to look like an old train car. And I've had some of my favorite acoustic performances there. Next, in the Italian part of Williamsburg on Graham Avenue, you had two bars, Daddy's and Sweet Ups. But these Italians were not going to let a bunch of art freaks smash up their neighborhood. So to drink at these bars, you had to keep it at a residential volume, at least when you were coming and going. Apartments, they line every block in this part of the neighborhood, and it wasn't the same kind of lawlessness that took place in industrial Williamsburg. Back over near McCarran Park, which we'll get to later, Enids opened in 99 and then Bar Matchless arrived across the street in 2003. When I moved to Brooklyn, this was still a pretty sleepy area, a little ways away from everything else. But a few years later, these two bars' proximity to each other will help make this a very hot corner. Okay, on Kent, along the East River, where still nothing was happening, Duff's opened in 2004. Duff's played all metal music all the time. And 
Metalheads love Brooklyn. I grew up in New England in an impressively large punk scene, and running parallel to us was an equally large hardcore scene. There was like one kid who was into metal that hung out with us. It wasn't until I got to Williamsburg that I saw metal dudes everywhere. Adult metalheads. Enough metalheads to keep Duff's open to this day. Enough metalheads that another all-metal bar opened a few years later in Greenpoint named St. Vitus. Enough metalheads that at one point, Matchless had an all-metal karaoke night, and, and this was very popular. And... I understand that metal is huge as a genre. Rednecks and townies and meatheads blasted in their trucks. Metal festivals, I see they draw enormous crowds. But with these Brooklyn metal ladies and gentlemen, I'm again really talking about a bunch of nerds and outcasts. I mean, in Williamsburg, you could be a metal dude that rides a bicycle everywhere and still get laid, you know? That's my kind of metalhead. I don't give a fuck about metal music, but I love weirdos of any variety, and I've been happy to be surrounded by these black-clad, long-haired freaks for my entire time here in Brooklyn. But two metal bars, who needs that? We fucking do, I guess. Okay, I'm not gonna get into the Bike Messenger Hangout East River Bar where we once threw a 90s wrestling-themed party complete with our own homemade wrestling ring. And I'm not going to get into South Williamsburg's Don Pedro's, which was already kicking in the early 2000s, but I wouldn't find out about it for a few more years. But there's no way to explain this time in Williamsburg without talking about Union Pool. Union Pool opened in 2000, right on the line between the Italian neighborhood and industrial Williamsburg. In this location, you could be as loud as you wanted because a big fucking highway runs right over you. Union Pool was the first bar I was taken to when I moved to Brooklyn. Now, I should start off by saying that in my early 20s, I was not a bar guy. Boston had been all house parties for me, and New York was DIY shows and Manhattan clubs. From what I could tell about bars, women didn't seem to hang out there. Plus, I couldn't afford the drinks. I was working three days a week at American Apparel. I was making $200 a week. I couldn't afford shit. I'd never, ever, ever bought a drink at a club. My system for the clubs was to drink a number of 24-ounce cans of beer on the street before I went in. Or if it was the winter, I'd figure out what beer they sold in the club and try to sneak a few of those in under my coat. But these bars in Williamsburg, they were intimate. It was a small crowd of people. And if you snuck in beer, you were going to get caught for sure. So I hardly went to bars at all. But Union Pool... Union Pool was a place I would sometimes go because in the early aughts, it was the only bar in Williamsburg that felt like it was catering to me in my early 20s. And there were occasionally girls there. Around this time, someone wrote an article that claimed that people who went to Union Pool got laid. Now, I don't know if this was true before the article came out, 
but certainly it would become true after. Like the publishing of the article made the article itself become true. The layout of Union Pool was, and still is, basically just one large room with a bar against one wall and booths lining the other. Between these two things, there is a decent amount of open space for dancing. Union Pool is now famous for its expansive backyard, but in 2004, the yard was occupied by the owner's collection of vintage cars, most of which I don't think even ran. And the patrons were only given like a 10-foot by 10-foot square out back for smoking cigarettes in. If you pass through the yard, you can enter a second room that Union Pool uses as a medium-sized venue. Although I don't recall any bands playing back there in those early days. I played a show at Union Pool in 2005, and, and we needed to bring our own PA because they didn't have one at that time. I don't know why. They already had a stage. In any case, soon Union Pool will be the most popular bar in the neighborhood. Soon I will live in an apartment where every one of my roommates but me works at Union Pool. But in 2004, Union Pool was a place that was mellow compared to the Manhattan clubs, but it did feel like something could happen to you there. And it was the only spot in Williamsburg at that time where I didn't feel like I was completely surrounded by people in their 30s and 40s. Of course, all this was about to change. Williamsburg was about to be full of horny little indie club nights. Young bars were opening up in the neighborhood and hiring young bartenders. Williamsburg nightlife would soon take almost all of my time away from Manhattan. These changes were already taking place by the end of 2004. But let's take a break here. And when I come back with episode two, we'll jump into 2005 and circle back around to this Williamsburg nightlife that was growing. Shout out to Matamoros. Shout out to Anytime and their $1 PBRs. Shout out to the Seagull Street Lofts' more famous neighbors, the McKibben Lofts. I want to take a moment to say that when I was researching this story, I noticed that the Morgan Stop is now considered Williamsburg, East Williamsburg. While this may be true... When I lived there, it was Bushwick. I don't know how or why that changed, but this is my podcast, and I'm calling it what it was called when I lived there. And if you got a problem with that, you can go fuck yourself. Shout out to Main Drag Music. Shout out to Earwax, Mikey's, Spoonbill. Spoonbill Books the only Williamsburg retail store to remain in the same location since the day I got here. So, when I was writing about Williamsburg, all three of these episodes, it was important to me to stay away from name-dropping. You'll find 
I rarely name the band that played the loft party. I rarely name the celebs that DJed the club night. I think what's important about the stories often gets lost in these names, and I wanted to avoid that. You know, someone will tell you a story and it will be like, I was at a bar drinking a white Russian, and I looked up and you'll never guess who walked in. Frank Sinatra. And I looked down at myself and I said, holy shit, Fletcher, you're drinking a white Russian in front of Frank Sinatra. Like, you hear these types of stories all the time. This is half of the stories that are on late night television. But obviously, if you take the celebrity out of the story, all you're really telling me is that you were at a bar and you drank a fucking white Russian, you know? Anyway... As I wrote a few drafts of this thing, I started taking all of the names out. And I was trying to build a story about a place that can stand up on its own without these people and without these bands. And every time I removed a name, I think the story got better. There were a lot of drafts of this motherfucker. I spent over half a year writing and producing this three-part Williamsburg piece alone. If it was executed correctly, the episode should sound like I just sat down in front of a microphone and started talking, and this story is what came out of my mouth. But that is definitely not how it went down. I wish I was that good. I mention this to you. I want you to understand the time it took, because I'm hoping that you support my podcast. I'm hoping that you see that my time was worth something to you. I'm asking for $5 for this five-episode season. Just Venmo me directly. I know you got that Venmo in your pocket. My Venmo is at Fletcher C. Johnson. If you don't have $5 to spare right now, that's fine. You can Venmo me $3. You can Venmo me $1. Whatever you can give, anything helps. But... If you support the podcast with $20 or more, I've got a gift for you. I will send you one short story. One short story in the U.S. mail. A physical copy for you to keep. A little Fletcher C. Johnson book of your very own. My Venmo is at Fletcher C. Johnson. My PayPal is FletcherCJohnson at gmail.com. If you send me $20 or more, please include your email address in a private message with the payment so I can figure out the best way to send you this short story. Shout out to the Brooklyn Art Rock crew. Parts and Labor, I'm looking at you. Big A, Little A, Japanther, Ninja Sonic. Uh, for those of you who can't give money... The next best thing you can do to help me out is tell someone about the podcast. If you think these stories would amuse your buddy Gary, send Gary a text. It's just that easy. If your friend Squirrel just hopped off a Union Pacific Railroad car, tell her to check out my Portland episode. You know she's gonna love it. Shout out to Teddy's on North 8th Street. Shout out to motherfucking... Top's Grocery Store. 
You've been listening to Listening to Fletcher C. Johnson. I'm Fletcher C. Johnson. Thanks for listening.